Hello, and welcome to Hashtag BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. On this episode of BTS Podcast, as you may have noticed in the title, I'm speaking with April Pride. April is a cannabis entrepreneur, the founder of Vanderpop, which was acquired by Canopy Growth. Since then, she's started Of Like Minds, which is a platform for cannabis brands to speak to women. Before I jump into plugging how to support this podcast and the parts that y'all probably skip, I do want to say that, you know, something that comes up a lot in conversations is supporting small businesses. And I think a lot of times we mean like purchasing from small businesses, which by all means is important. However, it's also really important to do things like sharing those with friends, whether that means to your Instagram story or on Facebook or whatever that may be, just letting people know that these small businesses exist is really important when you find something that you really enjoy. Share that with people and also give that feedback to companies. You know, I mean, I know that people are listening to this podcast and I hear from people that they enjoy it on occasion, which is really great, but I had no idea that people I knew really enjoyed the podcast until I ran into them places and they would let me know or I'd hear it through a friend of a friend. And a lot of people who are solopreneurs or maybe in small partnerships in small companies just don't hear about people appreciating what they do. And so I think it's really important to just shoot people a note and let them know that you like what they're doing or if there's feedback to let people know that there's small tweaks that could make your customer experience better, that's great too. I've had people let me know that I should do a better like process or job or whatever on the audio of this podcast, which I agree, I should. It's definitely on my radar. I have gone back and fixed a few episodes, which I felt just weren't the best quality. So anyways, please do share small businesses with others. Let people know what you like or small tweaks that you think would make your experience better. Before I jump in, please do subscribe, rate, review. Let me know what you like about this podcast. Let me know what you would like to hear a future episode about. Find us across social media at BTS The Podcast. I don't know why I keep saying us as if it's anyone more than just me. Also, you can support this podcast by using my promo codes, which help me save money on things that I like and things that I use often. And those things all directly correspond and relate to this podcast. One of which is Soothe. With Soothe, you can get in-home massages. They're amazing. I'm a huge fan. You can use code LZLRZ. You can also use code LCOOK61 to save on hotel tonight, where you can book beautiful hotels at a great rate across the world. Please do use those. Share them with your friends if you've already used them and it would be greatly, greatly appreciated. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with April. We get into cannabis, the industry, parenting when you work in cannabis, and so much more. Thanks so much. Hey, welcome to BTS Podcast. I am here with April Pride. Hi, April. Hi, Lene. Thank you for having me. Happily. Uh, so April is really incredible, and we met a few years ago through her company, Vanderpop. Uh, and we're going to talk about a lot in this episode. So you'd started your role at Vanderpop. You were the founder and CCO. Uh, can you explain what Vanderpop is and what and how it started? Sure. Yeah. So Vanderpop launched in January 2016. I'm a designer by training, so we designed with accessories to store, smoke, and share cannabis. Um, the idea was that people who were interested in better products around their cannabis consumption, didn't have a lot of options at that point. So I started working on the brand in 2015. And uh, within six months of launch, we had gone from focusing on 
on all individuals, male and female, women and men, who are interested in better looking products to get high to women, right? And what women needed in order to make confident, um, considered decisions around cannabis as an alternative to maybe other things that they're doing to relax or connect with their partner. So we did a pretty much an about face from product to education in the first year. Um, so that's where it started. Yeah. And so that, your roles prior to this had largely been creative roles. Mm -hmm. uh, what did you learn in developing a company in terms of, because that's when you're the founder of something, you're then heavily involved in also manufacturing and distribution. And in 2016, uh, even though cannabis was like present in most of our lives, especially on the West Coast, you know, and like in Washington, it was already legal. Mm -hmm. There was still, and I assume still is probably, a fairly large gap between people who are consuming and then also like where to buy those things and like yeah. just normal sort of distribution. So what what sort of uh, lessons did you learn in, in A, manufacturing? Because the stuff mm -hmm. that you guys were making was really unique and really beautiful. Um, and like for listeners, if you're not familiar with Vanderpop, their products are gorgeous and I remember at the time I don't I didn't see them on the website anymore but at the time there were like these really great uh like you know I when I grew up like pipes were like these like horrible looking glass <laughs> like hippie things you know what I mean and I don't be a hippie like I just not even like Venice there was just Beach. one option yeah there was one option yeah. and it was like it made you feel like you also needed like a velvet unicorn glow in the dark poster in your room. Like they weren't pretty. I would still do that. That's their great. Like a great Shout out to Spencer's. <laughs> yes, I love Spencer's so much. But yours were like airplane holders. Like they looked <laughs> like they would. They looked like the beautiful little geometric things that you put an airplane in. Um, how hmm. did you like? What did you learn about manufacturing and first in that process? And then we can talk about distribution. So. Uh, I am a designer, like I said, by training. This wasn't the first uh, product mm -hmm. brand that I had launched. I launched um, a home accessory in the lighting space uh, in 2008. Okay. And learned a ton. That was overseas manufacturing, wow. high, high MOQs coming out of China. What is um, less than 100 different SKUs, um, minimum order quantity. Oh, yeah, so like 60,000 units is what I had shipped over here, right? Wow. Um, so in order to really explain Vanderpop, you have to understand a little bit about other things that I've worked in because that gave me a heart attack, right? The units were very small. They were between like four and six inches long and an inch in diameter. Um, so easy to store. Yeah. But it is very difficult to sell 60,000 units of anything. Yeah. And we launched um, that company. I launched that company the day that Washington Mutual declared bankruptcy and the entire housing market crashed. Ah. <laughs> so it was an interesting three and a half years God. to be an entrepreneur. But that was my first taste of product, product design and marketing and distribution that I owned start to finish. And once I was bitten by that, that's all I wanted to do. I also had a um, interior design firm at the time and I phased out of clients and really started focusing on product. So my next company was a dress that was one size fits most. There was no grading, there was sizing. 
because I was going exactly the opposite of that first company where we had a lot of inventory right? and trying to have as little inventory as possible. Yeah. Um, and learned a lot in that process as well, namely that I did not want to be in fashion, right? <laughs> <laughs> so cannabis came along just in the nick of time. I had just finished a, um, a business plan for the dress mm-hmm. and one of my clients through that company was working a privateer and, uh, she, which is the parent, the holding company for Leafly and Marley natural and Tilray. And, okay. um, and she was just like, no one's doing anything that looks great in terms of products. She was seeing all of the decks and the deals that were coming in. No yeah. one was doing anything for women. She did. She did mention that. Uh, so I was floored as a creative. Yeah. What an opportunity. An amazing opportunity, right? Yeah. Just to be creative. And I had gone through, right, this was going to be my fourth startup. So I understood how to, I understood how to assess the market to know if the timing was going to be good or not. Right. And you could just see everything lining up for this to be a good time. Yeah. Um, if you were willing to do it earlier. Right. Yeah. So so I had experience sourcing. I had experience designing um, either mostly myself. I did work with product designers. Uh, what did we work? I don't know. Actually, we didn't work with product designers until we got into some more like our the multi tool once I had already sold Vanderpop. Um, but you take existing products that you like and you customize them right in a way that's specific to your brand. That's the that's the easy. Yeah. And a shortcut way to develop a product line. So the whole purpose with Vanderpop was to have as few SKUs as possible that allowed people to customize their session as much as possible. So you knew you needed something to store. Yeah. You knew you needed something to smoke. And you knew you needed something um, as a parent, right, to store and stash and lock away. Yeah. So once we hit as many of those as possible, we had enough of a product line to launch. And then you just see what the market really wants, right? So you launch with as little as possible so you can test and you're not stuck with 60,000 units when you realize like, oh, they really wanted yellow or it's just a little too (laughs) small. People need a little bit more space, right? right? So ultimately the Poppins bag, which is a locked handbag mm-hmm. was made in Italy with Italian leather. I visited this three generation workroom outside of Rome. Wow. Um, and that bag is something that's, that is the one product of my entire career up to this point that I'm the most proud of. Really? For sure. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, I, it's a beautiful bag. Thank you. It's awesome. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. And Happy with it and all of your products, I was so floored and we'll move past this, but I was just floored personally by the uh, detail and like how beautiful they were and how, because a lot of my friends who are parents also, you know, consume cannabis. And when you have that stuff, that's just so obviously what it is. Like once your kids see <laughs> that somewhere else, yeah. especially when it was more taboo. The light like, bulb goes off. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And also like, I mean, yeah, it's just one of those tricky things. Like I still don't own a piece just because... I don't know. I, I don't know why. So that I'm stuck in this horrible, horrible place where I'm like, I have one of your grinders that mm-hmm. I bought, um, mm-hmm. which I love. And it's yeah. and like, so April's attention to detail and utility is just so incredible. 
Um, because once she explained it to me, like it's, you know, like anything that's well designed, like the features may not be as obvious to you right away because that's the whole idea is that you can just engage with it and you're good. But once you're explained like, oh, here's this extra utility, Mm -hmm. it's amazing. And like the credit card size, like easy grinders, you know, are like the perfect gift for all of my friends who are parents that they can just stash that in their wallet and have it. Right. Um, yeah, and, and so 20, 2016 to launch all of this, um, because these products at the time, um, what was available looked like they should go in Barney's, but that's not something that Barney's would carry. But they do now. They do they now. They have an entire store. They have an entire wow. store for high-end cannabis goods. What's it called? Is it just called like Barney's? It's called the high-end. Oh, really? Yeah. And they own it? Yeah. It's in LA. Oh, of course they So, do. yeah, that's an... So I hired, um, this gets into distribution. So my idea was PAX had originated this where they worked with a showroom. PAX is the dryer vaporizer. Right. They worked with a showroom in LA that catered to fashion retail apparel. And that showroom manager got them into like, where were they? They were at um, opening ceremony. They were at Frank and Oak. Um, trying to think of maybe the apartment, not the apartment, but I want to say high end trendy yeah, <laughs> retailers, right? Where the people who go in there for clothes are definitely down, right? And yeah. it's like a one-stop shop, you know, totally. it made a lot of sense. So I hired a guy that had worked for Canada Goose, um, as a, a sales rep okay. to go and contact all of the retailers that he had sold Canada Goose into mm-hmm. and introduce them to Vanderpop. Nobody was ready. It didn't matter if it was in Colorado, right? Because he had accounts in Colorado. Yeah. These are high-end boutiques, right? Um, nobody wanted to touch it because they couldn't risk a client coming in. They didn't think that their clients would risk outing themselves to their retail sales rep. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It just wasn't there yet. People, yeah. and then think about this. So that's 2016. 2017 um, was the rise of kind of Canada legalization and talk around that. Yeah. Uh, 2018 is when cannabis became a wellness product and CBD is something that everybody wants to learn about. And then beginning of 2019, we've got this Barney's retail store. So there's an email I wrote three years ago to a Vogue editor that said, I truly believe that you will see these products in Barney's <laughs> and Fred Siegel. And, uh-huh. and it happened, but I was a little too early. I think, I think those, the, I know that Vanderpop products would be perfect. Um, in in those retail spaces today, right. They yeah. can definitely hold their own against the beautiful products that are now coming out. But at the time retailers weren't quite certain that this was something that their consumers would be cool with. Yeah, that's so interesting. I wouldn't have thought of the outing themselves as the fear. I, I guess I thought of it as like, oh, will customers come in who are like more conservative, see this, and then never come back? All of the above was the concern. Okay. Nobody knew how. In New York, the industry there is still very underground, right? Totally. In 2016, people were... Hush whispers, right? Yeah. Well, it was, it was like, still a felony. Yeah, right. Which is continues to be insane to me. Yeah. 
So things have changed now, right? Because it's medically legal and now they're decriminalizing it. And right. Doing all of this in the hopes that the, um, that the uh, opioid epidemic, right, will be curtailed. Which is such an interesting, I'm like... There's a lot of research. That, there's, yeah. there's a lot of research around it, but to me, I'm kind of like, I think a lot of those arguments mm-hmm. are not because that's what people truly think. It's because of money. Okay. You know, like I've read through some of the research and arguments around it. And to me, it's, it's just like painfully obvious that it's like the opioid epidemic is now a conversation people are having, which means it's like a dirty topic. Mm-hmm. Rightfully so, mm-hmm. you know, um, but people are realizing, especially uh, people with a lot of money are realizing how much money there is in cannabis, how much money they can make in cannabis and how um, it is not appropriate anymore. Now that opioid, opioid like market, that whole market has been ousted as like, Hey, this is like very dangerous mm-hmm. and not okay. Because like, if you take this, you, yeah, you're right. You're never going to feel that good again. So like, of course people are getting addicted. Um, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, what a great excuse to like, you know, shift focuses for something that you've already known for years. Because like when I was in high school, several kids I went to school with were addicted and overdosed and died. Yeah. So I'm like, this has been going on. And I, you know, for 20 years, there have been medical professionals who sounding the alarm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just interesting to me where I'm like, yeah, that's like a a nice hope. But like, I don't know anybody who's been like, oh, I I don't think I'll get addicted to Oxy. I'll just smoke a little bit of weed instead. You know, but I think as an option, it it is more for younger kids Mm -hmm. making this more of an option because when people are stealing from their parents' cabinets. Stealing CBD from your parents' cabinet is way less of a risk than, like, taking Oxy from your parents' cabinet. It's like, terrifying. It's true. Well, okay, so you bring up a really interesting point because the money part of this is 100% true. I I think there are a few issues around money at play. One is that municipalities are being bankrupted because of the social services and medical services, the need to respond to opioid overdoses, children who are left without parents. Like there are states and states and municipalities that are suing drug makers because they bankrupted. Wow. Yeah. Their cities. I did not know. Yeah, so that's that's part of it. So that's one of the reasons why states are trying to find an alternative and treat people who are addicted to opioids less like addicts that right. just need to like figure it out. Yeah. And more like a medical condition that and they're going to be managing it the rest of their life. So what cannabis allows them to do, the research, the clinical trial that came out that people are in the last Uh, eight months that people are talking about is that if you, it might be a year, it's over a year actually, because I heard about it in St. John last June, um, is that within two weeks of taking opioids, you are already addicted to it, right? So your brain is addicted. It takes two weeks. If you're going to form that addiction, it's two weeks of usage. That's terrifying. It's so, so scary. So if you can get somebody to take cannabis and opioids, it will reduce the, the dosage by half. 
if they take cannabis along with their opioids. Interesting. And they have, they come off of their opioid medication. They titrate off a lot quicker too. I should get those numbers and have them down. But the point is, is used in conjunction. You're not getting people at like, I don't know the dosage of um, oxy or fentanyl or whatever that's like lethal. But if you can half the dosage, you're not going to get into the lethal area where your internal organs are shutting down. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, so that's, and then the money thing. Yes. I heard something. This is the the last part around money. I was listening to Steve D'Angelo, who is the founder of Harborside, which is a big retailer in Oakland. And, um, he's also a co-founder of Arcview, which was an early investment platform for cannabis entrepreneurs. And he was saying, listen, I am, I've been, I went to my first anti or pro cannabis rally when I was 15 years old and I'm in my sixties, right? So I have dedicated my entire life to this plant. I am part of the legacy community, Yeah. but I have to say if these big companies that are, were producing tobacco and focused on spirits yes. are now focused on cannabis, I feel a lot better about the product that they're putting out in the world and they can scale this, which means we can have more people consuming this plant and benefiting from it. Interesting. I just listened to that last night. And that is the only attitude that we can have in terms of the money. The money is coming. Yeah. And I would rather the money be behind making sure as many people are consuming cannabis if that's what they would like to do. Right. Over drinking and smoking cigarettes. Agreed. So. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, so... Speaking of money, <laughs> so Vanderpop was acquired mm-hmm. a few years in, is that correct? Like to, in 2018, is that right? Uh, February 2017, so just after just a year a after year. we launched, yeah. Uh, can you sort of walk me through what that was like for you? And I think, um, I think first of all, just like, what is that like? Like, how does that work? Mm-hmm. You know, and was, was was this your first time dealing with an acquisition? Second time. Second time. Yeah, I sold the first private company that I mentioned earlier. Okay. Yeah. And were did you find that there was a lot that you learned from that first acquisition that empowered you to, like, think yeah. differently about this one? Yeah. What were some of those lessons from the first one? Uh, the first one, I think what I learned was that if you... If you feel like there is a buyer, if you if you need an exit for whatever reason, I didn't necessarily need an exit with Vanderpop, uh-huh. but I kind of did. We'll get to that. Um, there is a buyer, right? So once you decide that you either need to move on to other things or you need supplemental resources, whatever that means, if you want to sell your company, there is a way to do that. You just have to find the right buyer that has a need for what you're offering. And how do you okay. find a buyer? Like that's such a crazy, like, I don't know. So there is an investor <laughs> that's on um, Bainbridge okay. whose dad has been a cannabis advocate for years and years and years. And so this guy is investing family money uh-huh. uh, into the, in the cannabis space in a big way. And he had invested in uh, Tokyo smoke out of Canada and knew Alan really well. And I had met Alan um, when he came to Seattle. So I had a brief, but a relationship with uh, Alan Gertner, who's a, was a founder of Tokyo Smoke. Um, And this guy, Dave, again, who lives on Bainbridge found Vanderpop listed on Angel List. Angels? Angel List. Yeah. 
and called me up and or emailed me and said, hey, I'd like to talk to you. I'm an investor, Washington State. Great. Those emails, they don't, just so you know, people aren't just emailing you and saying, I'm investing money in your space and I'd like to talk to you. That doesn't happen. Right. <laughs> so, totally. It, well, sometimes it does, right? Yeah. So we But talked, it's not like it was one of a dozen emails you got. This was like, yeah. No. Off of AngelList, besides someone trying to sell me something, that totally. was the only one. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he and I talked for an hour and a half. And a week later, he called me and said, hey, listen, what would you think about merging with Tokyo Smoke, right? Like, Alan has this going on. You have this going on. There's clear alignment, right? For yeah. where you both are going, your design preferences, the whole, how you see the market and the consumer and the rest of it. So Alan and I hopped on a call a week after I talked to this Dave guy and we had a deal within three months, right? That's so amazing. yeah, um, it is amazing. And it, so what got us, me there was I had raised $25,000 from two different investors here in mm -hmm. Seattle and my husband and I put in about the equivalent if you, meaning a total of a hundred thousand dollar investment. Uh -huh. And I knew that 2% of all VC funding went to women founded businesses. Right. And I knew that people were not buying cannabis accessories yet. Right. Yeah. We didn't have distribution beyond the uh, parties that we were hosting and people were coming to. There was, there was definitely online sales, but it wasn't enough to sustain mm -hmm. a company or to scale. Right. So, but we were onto something. People loved this brand. Yeah. You know, I mean, I felt like there was a place for it in the industry and consumers, primarily, obviously women needed this. There's so much information out there that was incorrect or just wasn't yeah. being told in a way that feels like there's relevancy. Right. So, um, <clears throat> and Alan was, <clears throat> excuse me, Alan was very good at raising money. Um, I also, this was before the June 2017 um, vote that made cannabis legal federally in Canada. I sold right before that announcement knowing, I mean, everyone sort of knew that was coming. Right. But if the idea is that you're going to have a successful exit or have the resources that you need to scale and knowing that I didn't want to touch the plant in the U.S., it just it's very expensive and doesn't make a lot of sense without federal right. legalization. Canada was the place to be. Yeah. Right. We were talking about timing, looking for the signs. Yeah. It was the smartest decision that I could have made for this brand to continue to live. Right. Okay. And to thrive. Um, and it also gave me an opportunity to work in a legal country Right. Yeah. Or approaching legalization too. And what that looks like as you're ramping up to become a regulated industry or work within a regulated industry versus here, which is kind of, it is regulated, but you know, it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> There's it's some gray. You know, it's funny because, uh, I think cannabis is such a good, less divisive issue that is so interesting to see play out across different States. And like, it, it really is a good, I think if you're teaching people about how the U.S. government stuff works, that it is the perfect example of how something that's like can be legal on a state level, but not legal at a federal level. And like just how that plays out. And my my grandma says something that I love because she's not she's not from this country. 
And I said something to her lamenting about, uh, you know, just where everything is at right now about a year ago. And I said something to her about, I made some comment and I said something about like this country and she like was cooking and she put down everything and she looked at me and she goes, country, this is not a country. Look at what is, what is this country called? Like, and she, she says this country in quotes. Right. And I was like the United States of America. And she was like, exactly. And she's, her first language is Spanish. So then she goes, Estados Unidos de America. She was like, these are just states united. This is not a country. Hmm. And when she said it that way, I was like, wow. Like that is, (laughs) like, it's true. And she also like, her background, like she uh, was in journalism and her father worked for the British government. Um, but she was born in Colombia and her mother's Colombian. And so her perspective on stuff has really shaped the way I think about things. Because when she talked to me about like her job as a journalist, you're like, oh, reporting on things. And she was like, no, like I wrote for the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. My job was to report on things to make who was paying us look good. So like, who's paying? And I was like, oh my, like, just learning that early on in life, you're like, oh, and then like her dad's job working for the British government, she was like, so what does that mean? And I was like, oh, that he, like, what does it mean to be an information officer, right? And I'm like, oh, to have information. She was like, no, his job was to make sure that whatever country we were in, so we were when we were in Colombia, when we were in Brazil, Turkey, whatever, that he had relationships with those journalists and those newspapers to make sure that they were getting information from the British perspective and sticking with that. And I was like, nothing's real. (laughs) Like, it's all a nightmare. But I mean, that threw me when I realized it at a much later age than you. (laughs) I can't imagine your poor little brain trying to process it all. Right, exactly. Well, totally. And I was just like, oh, God. (laughs) Like, it's... Where do we go from here? Right, exactly. And and island, we start somewhere else and then just repeat history, right? Like that's the only, you're like, what do we do? Right. Press eject. Um, But I mean, she brings up a great point, right? We always talk about how can, well, look at what's happening right now. And totally with abortion. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which that is like, that is, uh, and that's why I think that the cannabis conversation and how that's happening at a government level is a good way to illustrate what's going on with abortion without getting people riled up about, because then people get into the details of what they believe versus in their experience and like all this other stuff. And no matter what side you're on. Right. And, um, and so it just becomes really difficult and it's same with like same sex marriage and everything where things are then passed in this like weird backward way, just because you have so many people in typically the same states who are not on board. Right. And then, and what's interesting to me is I'm like, can't you see the pattern here? But like, can't right. you see that like eventually, you know, your kids will be on board and think that you're, you know what I mean? Like, why don't you see that you continue to just not have the right idea? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. You're not facing forward. And even right? from a financial perspective, mm-hmm. I'm like, uh, like with cannabis specifically, there's so much money in it that I think it was easier probably to get states on board, um, depending on like where those people stood during like you yeah, know I mean, the look war at John on drugs Boehner, or whatever. Yeah. There's 
there's so many, uh, there's so much evidence of people just being a part of this because of the, the financial yeah. opportunities. They don't even consume cannabis, right? right? People that are, they don't care. Yeah. Which is what allows, or, nor or do they understand why their consumer does, right? Right. Yeah. Like you can't create a product or a brand that consumers are going to feel connected to if the person at the top has zero connection with the plant because the decisions are made with a different goal in mind, as we discussed earlier, yeah. right? <clears throat> and that, that so. does trickle down. But then, I mean, I, I don't know. But then you do have people who just are sort of like mindlessly consuming stuff mm-hmm. that like if it's in front of them, they'll just yeah. take it. And yeah. so it's, yeah, it's, it's super interesting. So uh, speaking of... Of money and stuff. You keep uh, going back to the money. <laughs> well, because I'm thinking about Vanderpop and like how you had to uh, like just assess different business models for yeah. distribution, right? right? Like because when you're not in stores, then you have to rethink that. And I, if I remember correctly, it was also like you, did you shift business models at some point? Oh, every month. A I few think. times. Yeah. 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 Had to. So, um, also did, a benefit of not having a lot of inventory. Right. Oh, true. Yeah. You can't you can't shift a beast as quickly <laughs> as you can just like the tide right. starts moving in a different direction. Yeah, right? it's very different when you're a kayak versus a battleship. Yeah, like that's a great yeah. It's a different analogy. Kind of thing. Yeah. Um so what did you learn in shifting those business models? Because I think business models are so interesting once you start to realize how many options there are. It's like a Mr. Potato Head. Yeah. So with cannabis, you really just start with what other um, CPG brands are doing, right? Mm. This is a commodity. Mm-hmm. Um, you plug it into the system. I knew that the system in terms of apparel was totally entrenched, the distribution model, manufacturing model, marketing, all of it. It is not set up for small businesses to succeed, right? Right. And the small businesses that have succeeded have really thought outside the box, right? They have mastered... Um, so what is this one brand? It's called Lolly. Man, Lolly Doodle. I'm okay. pretty sure that's the name. They're out of North Carolina. And they sell on Facebook. And then they adopted Instagram later. But really, they sell on Facebook. That's where their consumer is. Uh-huh. They put a picture up at the beginning of the day. And they say, we have this design available uh-huh. in these sizes. Tag us and we'll send you an invoice. Wow. And she created a multi-million dollar company in not a lot of time and completely took advantage of um, people who had been in the garment industry and had worked at these mills in North Carolina that already knew how to sew. She had a workforce around her and she was able to employ them. She's a really creative, creative marketing um, okay. So I was looking at that for the business model for the dress, the business prior to Vanderpop. And I felt like if there was any space that you had to walk the line, right? You could be super innovative in cannabis, but you also were dealing with a product that people weren't so certain about. And so you had to present it to them in a familiar way, mm-hmm. right? You couldn't reinvent everything and say we're gonna get high. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. People's minds were already a little bit blown, right? Yeah. But so you start with the products. The products look like something you'd have in your closet or on your vanity with your other, with your other items, right? Right. So you're not 
putting something in front of them that's totally jarring. Yeah. And in fact, it looks familiar, but what are you saying you use it for? So you get their yeah. attention and they're, they want to chat about it more. What I found, and this will get to how the business model kept changing, is that people liked the products, but they really didn't know anything about cannabis, right? Yeah. So we launched in January <clears throat> with the product line. Um, we focus on women. I pitched to Arcview, Steve D'Angelo's company, uh-huh. in April, and that's the first time that I really pitched to investors as this is a brand in the cannabis space for women. Uh-huh. And the feedback from that pitch was, I don't get it. People who smoke pot are people who smoke pot. Why do you need a special brand for women? <laughs> and it was a woman investor that said that, right? So, I mean, some of these things I printed out, I'm like, this is amazing. This is going to really build character. I know it will. So that is where the industry was at that time. And then, so that's April in August. It's like, okay, the fall is coming up, right? The summer's hard in terms of sales, right? Because people are distracted and all the rest of it. But in August, you really got to start thinking about what you're doing in the fall and what you're doing for holiday. Yeah. Like we need an opportunity for women to interact with these products. So that's when we started carrying products from other brands, like the pipe that you mentioned is the geo pipe and it's oh, out of really um, yeah it's out i of thought that Portland. you guys made it this mm-hmm. makes more sense yes okay. yeah yeah so um fez which is a seattle-based dryer vaporizer there are so many women-owned brands that's so cool that were super killer that i mean we needed product they were willing to work with us like yeah. no like give me three devices and i'll see what i can do uh so that's what we started in september hosting preparing to host these small intimate events like you had worked at Rodan and Fields right so I was asking you about the in-home multi-level how does this work yeah so we signed up six different women in six different states Uh including Utah right very cool which is yeah that's the market (laughs) honestly but they like pills because they're Mormon and their doctors will prescribe pills and therefore and there's no smell well they're just cannabis is like right younger youth yeah youth yes but the parents not so much right yeah it's yeah and the smell yeah there's no discretion there so um learned a lot namely you need a ton of resources to support people that are trying to sell products for you right yeah there's a lot of yeah a lot of like uh questions a lot of yeah there's a lot of just not having read the paperwork like there's yeah because people just have questions especially with something for so new and I mean it's not actually now that I'm thinking of it that different from skincare because in skincare that's your face yeah like of course you're gonna have a lot of questions before you just put this on your face sure yeah and then everybody has different values and priorities and stuff and so you do totally need like a support team to support people in having like the right words, the right literature, yeah, the right exactly. everything. For yeah, that, exactly. Which is a lot of work. It is. I mean, I so I sold <laughs> books door to door to put myself through college. So understanding a, really, yeah. <laughs> so understanding a script and like the amount of time that your sales force is investing in your dream. Right. It takes time to get people to show up to an event. Yeah. It takes time to follow up with them. It takes time to answer their questions about the products, right? And I, we just didn't have time. 
and neither did our sales reps, right? They were needed to make money today. Yeah. And I, we were still dealing with a lot of questions around the plant. So we had our first, we called them session. We had our first session in uh, the beginning of November. And then a week later we were in LA and we had our session, our second session, which I think I lied and said it was like, we've done plenty of them filmed by vice. Oh, crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So that happened. And then right before that happened, like at Halloween was when I had started talking to Tokyo smoke. Okay. So our business model went from, we sell accessories online Uh to, and we had a, um, an advice column and strain reviews. So we were supporting the consumer in questions, but it was really looking at it more from an SEO standpoint Yeah. so that we could drive people to the website. (laughs) Um, And had plenty of content to talk about on Instagram and all of that, right? Um, So education through content became the primary focus, let's say, through August. And then we started gearing up for session and working with other vendors so that we could have a more robust product offering. Yeah. And session was going well. Again, people just had questions about the plan. So by January 2017, we became an educational platform for women. Yeah. And we did have our products. And we would launch <laughs> limited edition products like cards and various things um, to continue to offer products, uh-huh. right? And again, to have content around that and talk about it with relevancy to um, the women that we were serving. But... It just, in order for it to be all content, where were we going to make our money, right? So now we're in Canada, right? So the deal closed February and we had medical cannabis distributed to patients throughout Canada within six months. So we actually were now a cannabis brand that sold cannabis. Crazy. (laughs) But we could only do that in in Canada. Canada. Yeah. Yeah. So. So as, as that shift happened where then Tokyo Smoke acquires Vanderpop, um, your role then as CCO, how did that change? So I wasn't used to not doing everything. Right. <laughs> right. So um, there were a lot of blessings in that. Yeah. I had help. Actually, the um, creative director at Tokyo Smoke had worked at Barney's for years, right? So she had cool. a, she understood the system, right? Workflow and all the rest of it. So she was, um, Berkeley pool. She was really, really, um, an amazing person to have as a peer, as we were sort of figuring all this cannabis startup thing together. Um, but what my role, because she was so talented and she was based in Toronto and I'm here in Seattle, Tokyo Smoke was based in Toronto she was really doing the creative, right? Yeah. And we were managing social media and some of the product stuff here uh, and developing original content with me, videos and that sort of thing here. But I was intended to just be a talking, okay, <laughs> you know, just a talking head um, about women's issues as it pertained to cannabis. Um, stigma, motherhood, that became more of my focus to become an authority or a thought leader in cannabis. I had a lot of reluctance around Uh that. I mean, why do you think? Um, I, I, I don't know. I think at first just cause I like to, I like to do things, right. I was designing things. 
things and we were working on marketing. That's what I was enjoying doing for a decade. Yeah. And this was a huge transition in my career and transitions are sticky and hard. And, you know, I didn't always behave in a way that I'm proud of because I was still wanting to, to like lead this brand that I had started into the place that I had a vision for. And um, the only way really to serve, I'd like to use that word because we're not really selling to the women, right? Like, yeah, we are marketing, but that all sounds not so great. The women that we're trying to educate around this, the most value I could ever add to that mission is to just talk as much as possible about the challenges around having access to the plant or understanding dosage. And the more I just like let go of what I had been doing uh-huh. and embrace my future <laughs> role, um, the brand just continued to grow and thrive. Um, and I realized that women just kind of need someone to talk about this stuff so they know what questions they have. Totally. You don't know what questions you have if you don't know what the hell we're talking about to begin yeah. with, right? So I I just realized, right, this is, this is what they want me to do. And I have a job to do. It's not so bad, right? Yeah. It's not so bad. Right. So I started sleeping a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> spending more time with my family. I mean, I had been in, an entrepreneur, which is not something that I really called myself for over a decade. And I had two kids. And I mean, it was bananas, right? So yeah. to just even have a more sane schedule was, again, there were a lot of blessings. Like I said, that was definitely one of them. Um, and... And I'm more comfortable in that place now because I'm not doing it because it makes my children's lives any easier that their mom's sitting around talking about sex and weed all the time, right? Right. Um, I think it is a really, really important thing to have a person that's willing to talk about the hard stuff as we're trying to normalize this. Yeah. Um, and I feel grateful that people even want to listen to what I to say and I will only say things that I really feel are correct and fair yeah and that is what my new business is about so was there anything specifically that you realized in that sort of feeling of like the reins being taken from you was like there anything that you read or listened to or whatever that helped kind of shift your perspective around that totally um I would say um, I'm trying to think. I mean, you read, you listen to lots of podcasts, right? How I Built This is definitely a favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, I'm not really going to read a lot of books, but I do read okay. some magazine articles. Yeah. Um, and I just think that there is a place when a woman, I'm 43 now, so at about 37, 38 in the biographies that I have read or stories that I have listened to, women really find their thing at 37 or 38, right? Like if leading up to that point, they've quote done the work, whatever that means is different for different people, but you're in a place where you're, you're certain of who you more certain of who you are and what you want to do. It seems like it's such a late time in your life, but I mean, that's just when it really does happen for women. That's when our confidence catches up with our abilities and our experience in a lot of ways. So, um, 
if you look back at what happens at 37 or 38, women do, do start to take on roles that are less about doing the work and inspiring others to do work, right? Or yeah. whatever it is. Um, and that takes so many forms. Like Jane Fonda, she released her workout videos, right? Empowering women to be healthy or, you know, unhealthy. We can talk about that in another episode. <laughs> um, Catherine Graham took the reins of the Washington Post. Um, yeah, there are lots and lots of examples. And then to be 43 now, I guess I should be at a place in my career where I have enough that I've learned that if I open my mouth and try and tell people something that it's coming from a place of really knowing, not telling you what you should do, but like, here's what I did right. And here's what I did wrong. There's a lot of learnings in that. Why else have all these totally good and bad things happen? So, you know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I think, uh, Maybe there's two things that come to mind. One is that maybe for women, we really feel like, and I'm sure there's men out there who feel this way too. We really feel like if we're going to impart any sort of advice or position ourselves as thought leaders, that we need to be competent in what we're saying versus there's a lot of people out there, um, you know, who will just spout off whatever you know, tidbit they think is good or like quotable thing to position them with the goal of positioning themselves as thought leaders without any concern for if what they're saying is applicable to most people even, which drives right. me nuts because yeah. like for years you'd hear that advice of like, oh yeah, you just, you know, work these crazy work weeks and the work will pay off and like all that stuff. Well, none of it's true. People are just saying that because it's quotable, like the whole rise and grind thing, as it is much more uh, relatable in terms of cannabis than it is in terms of <laughs> like what you should be doing with your day and what's healthy. And yeah. so I think it takes us a while to have the experience and the confidence to say that. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, when you were saying 37 or 38 sounds or feels later in life, um, I think it feels that way because we hear so many stories of people finding their purpose at a younger age because those are the ones that are not normal, right? And so that is much more interesting if the goal of a magazine or whatever is to, or like a website is to get the click or to get someone to consume a story, um, finding out a 21 year old, you know, figured this out and now is like a leader in whatever space, that is more of an outlier than the groups of people who are figuring that out in their 30s and stuff. And, you know, I think about it and it's like, yeah, you still have at 37, you still have everything that you have behind you in life, you still have ahead of you. You peak in your career at your 40s, right? Like that's how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to retire like 55 or something. Right. So mid 40s is when you're supposed to be, oh, right? Yeah. So it kind of makes sense and too. And with the lifespans as they are now, like at 37, you still have sure. another 40 or 50 years. And in your 40s, you still have potentially another 40 or 50 years like and I mean and I come from like a family of long livers totally. so I'm like oh god this is gonna take forever like my great-grandma lived to be 100 you know my grandma one of them is 88 like my my grandfather who his mom lived to be 100 he's in his like early 80s and like still goes kayaking and like he was just sang in choir at Carnegie Hall like the oh, man's wow. doing stuff yeah. you know so I'm like, uh, like it, it feels 
even I used to put a lot more pressure on myself like when I was 25 and hadn't done anything that I respected I was like oh god like did I overestimate my potential mm-hmm. and then as now like I just turned 30 on Friday I'm so much more relaxed about it because I'm also like yeah I know plenty of people that were successful at 25 and now they're 40 and don't know what they're doing with their lives so like whatever yeah you know there's plenty right. of time to find sure. yourself and then get lost again like yeah. it'll be fine right. yeah um so in that transition, and then you are no longer at Vanderpop, correct? Yeah, right. So Vanderpop went on to be purchased by Canopy Growth, okay. which is the world's largest cannabis company. Wow. And Vanderpop is one of the top three brands at that company. Congratulations. Thank you. That is exciting. And then I left. I'm like, my work is done here. <laughs> so in all of that, the acquisition and then the total sale of Vanderpop, mm-hmm. um, what were some of like your main takeaways so primarily if that if people who are are quote unquote leaders in the space, right, we have um, we have people's ears, um, we have a certain amount of um, influence, whatever that might mean, whether it's with other business owners or with consumers, we're at this really important time in this nascent industry, which is if we don't, ensure that it's being built with equity and parity in mind right now (laughs) we are in trouble there will not be diversity of any sort including thought and gender and race in the executive roles where decisions are being made canada is they federally legal medicinally since 2001 and I can tell you that there are I'm trying to think how many LPs there are now there's probably over 50 there were 37 two years ago so a lot and there's one that has a CEO that's a woman co-CEOs actually of course because women are willing to work together and share a title um, because there's been money in it these brands have been or companies have been publicly traded for almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. So men have gone into um, this field because it was safe. They could support their family. And when it becomes federally legal in the U S we're going to be up against the same challenges. And I can tell you that the men at the head of companies in Canada are talking to the men at the head of companies in the U S about when that happens. So for me right now, my goal is to make sure that the women that I've met on this journey, if I know of an opportunity that I think would fit them within an organization or to help a U.S. brand go into Canada and they can, you know, if they're Canadian, a Canadian woman can represent or help usher that along in a different market, vice versa, um, then I'm doing my best to make sure that those roles are filled by women because by the time it's let's say seven years away, seven and a half years from full legalization here, that there are women who have been in this space for long enough to be director, VP, C-suite. And we see product offerings that are to a large assortment of people who may have an interest in cannabis, right? Vanderpop is for women, but there are a lot of different women and not all of them does Vanderpop answer their needs, right? Right. So, but a man that's running a company, it's like, we have our female brand, right? Even yeah. using the word female, right? Like there are a lot of things that we just, 
I feel as an industry, this is the time to really mobilize and, um, and it's being whitewashed, right? This industry was built by communities of color mm -hmm. and their, uh, uh, African-Americans are in some cases, eight times more likely to be incarcerated for simple possession of cannabis, which is less than three grams. Wow. Than a white person. Yeah. Hispanics, I don't know why I'm saying, wow, I'm not surprised. Five times more likely. I mean, it's just, I can't hear it enough, right? Just to yeah. remind me what we are trying to do, which is to make sure that people who know more about distribution and quality plant material and all of that get an opportunity to really use their talents in a space where they can yeah. create generational wealth. <laughs> yeah. I just, yeah, so... That is a huge mission of mine. So this company that we just launched is called Of Like Minds. And the idea is that we are a marketing channel for cannabis brands that want to reach women. We know how to reach that consumer. Uh -huh. These brands are not necessarily targeting them, but they do have products that women could benefit from. And, you know, these companies will benefit. Women will buy their products and they will become a new source of revenue. Mm -hmm. But while men are making decisions... I think it's just harder for them to understand that. Yeah. I don't fault them for it, right? We just... Right. But yeah. I couldn't understand the needs of men. That's exactly right. Like... And that's okay. I'm confused regularly why men use the things that they use, right. you know? Right. <laughs> but right. to each their own. Mm -hmm. um, where did you... So starting several companies takes a certain degree of, well, definitely confidence <laughs> for sure. Where did you learn like business acumen? No, on the job, right? Okay. Yeah. So you, the idea is if you do start four companies, mm -hmm. that each time you get a little bit better at it, yeah. you know, whatever that means. And I think that the first thing is to make sure that you are in a headspace that's very clear. And so you're looking for the signs, right or wrong, that can help you, quote, pivot as needed. That means not being entrenched when it comes to... Um, having all of your cash flow and your inventory. Figure that out. That means not touching the plant if you've raised $100,000 because you're going to spend all of that on legal fees, right? So how else can you play in the cannabis space and have a voice in the cannabis space without necessarily touching the plant out of the gate? You can learn so many more things if you're not beholden to testing regulations, the whole growing something out of the ground and crossing your fingers that it comes out okay, right? There's just a lot um, there. So I think keeping it as simple as you can for as long as possible is really the secret to starting a company. Don't complicate it before you actually have to. I love that. You should take that approach in life. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right. Um Okay, so then can you also, I meant to ask this earlier, and mm -hmm. then uh, our conversation was going in different directions, and so I didn't want to intrude, so now I will. Um, how, how would you describe the role of being a CCO? <clears throat> so it is a new title, right, that we've seen in the last less than a decade, I would say. Um, and if you look at how it's being used, like... Um, who, uh, what's his name? From, think about Will I Am, who was, is like the creative ambassador or something for Samsung, I think it is. Yeah. 
uh, and there are others um, that come to mind, but when people are looking at brands to become loyal to, right, you have the CEO who is talking about the business, right? And some CEOs and their background and their approach is super compelling, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have the person who's driving your emotional response to the brand. That's typically going to be a person who is creative and talking in pictures, right? Mm -hmm. And talking about the product that you're going to be touching and is in some way gonna be enhancing your life. And that's just a different vocabulary and it's a different look, right? It's not a suit. It is whatever's on trend or individual to that person that makes them a compelling figure. And as any person in the C-suite, your job is outward facing. A CMO is the person talking about the brand mm -hmm. on panels and to the press. The chief creative officer, and then the CEO is talking to like Bloomberg and all of that, right? And the chief creative officer is talking to the consumer, not to the press or panel or on panels and all of that, but directly to the consumer, right? Like, because that's who we want to think that we are aligned with the most is the cool person doing interesting things, right? So... You know, not to put myself in that category, but, but you are. It's okay. But maybe that's the luckiest thing ever, right? <laughs> yeah. To not be beholden to the PL. What? Huh? To not marketing and creative are the complete opposite. Yes. <laughs> well, they can be. I think it gets squishy when it comes to things like social media. True. Where true. and that is why actually my friend Chris Denson is awesome and he has a great podcast called Innovation Crush. And hmm. Because he and I have um, similarities in what we do. I went to him and was like, look, can we just talk about what I do and how to phrase it? Because it is a, at a weird intersection of understanding culture, communicating a brand to culture in a way that makes sense, but on specific online communities or within specific um, community events. Like, mm -hmm. what do we call that? And he was like, it's, he took some time and thought about it. And he was like, you do creative science. Yeah. Where you're taking like a scientific approach to creativity, you're taking your understanding of culture and then, you know, and which is a, you know, humanities science mm -hmm. and then also breaking down how to uh, speak to people through creative. And looking at the data to see sort of people's emotional responses to X, like what's relevant. Totally. To yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, but yeah, to your point, marketing and creative, especially when it comes to the way a company is branded is very different. Yeah. And it's not impossible for a person to be creative and adept at marketing. Right. No question. I think marketing is showing your work and creativity is knowing what's right in yeah. a way. Right. It's a much more intuitive. You're looking at trends, but you're not necessarily looking at trends through a um, trend forecasting website. You're just following people who you think are doing interesting things. You're doing the and forecasting. seeing what they're looking. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Like you're, you're, you're not relying on that. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you're doing your job right. Totally. Right. Because you're not reading a report and going, okay, so in the next year we're going to do this. And then people have done it six months before you can't yeah. do that. But selling that vision to the CEO and to the CMO, getting them aligned with, 
your vision and what you think is best for the brand from a, I'm not going to show you my work necessarily, but this is what I'm seeing and this is how I feel it's going to translate to more business for us. You have to figure out how to talk their language and you have to understand how to use numbers, creative science. It's a great way to describe it. That is what the CCO should be doing. Yeah. How did you learn how to do that? Uh, again, on the job, right? Really? It's all on the... Yes, I went to architecture school. That's what I mean. Like, that's what's so crazy is like your background. It's such a difficult thing to learn the language of how to communicate to other people and what it is that they care about. And because what you're doing seems so obvious to you, which is why you do it. Mm -hmm. And then learning just, I mean, I know at like my first job, I would just literally, because neither of my parents have like business jobs. Sure. Well, they didn't at the time. I guess they do. My dad does now. But... It wasn't what I was raised in, and none of their right. friends do either. And I would literally like take notes of phrases to be like, "Oh, you don't say I'll, you don't say like, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you about this later." Or you say I'll circle back with you. Just nonsense like that, you know? Yeah, that sounds fancier. And like, oh, what does P and L mean, right? And just things like that, you just don't know. Right. Um. Yeah, that's like that's a hard thing to learn on the job, though. It's like very. I mean, you have to learn it. To your point, I know, but no, it's also it's intimidating. True. Yeah, I mean, I just either never put myself in the position where I was working on opportunities that I needed to understand a PNL. Right. I think that was by design, frankly. I mean, <laughs> honestly, graduate school was at Parsons, right? I mean, okay. I definitely was invested in that part of my learning yeah. early on. Um, but in order to monetize your creative thinking, you have to figure it out. And I mean, really what I figured out is... I need someone to translate the PNL for me. <laughs> yeah. Numbers take me a long time unless it's a formula that's calculus. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh -huh. So I am not, um, I'm not the accounting part of things is not something that's easy for me, but looking at your uh, e-commerce platform and understanding where people are finding you, how people are finding you, looking at any of the data that's on Instagram, right? Yeah. Using Iconosquare, all that stuff, seeing what your competitors are doing, what types of posts people are responding to. Okay, let's double down and do more of that lips and smoke and fingernails. Lots of posts with those, one of those three things, because that's what people were responding to with Vanderpop, right? Yeah. So that doesn't mean we can't be creative because we have these, this kit of parts, these three things that are the parameters. It just means that you have to do a lot of that in a lot of variety, right? So how can we be creative with that? Um, a great example, I think, of using intuition where there isn't data to support it. So with Vanderpop, <clears throat> we had so many women who wanted to learn how to roll a joint. I am here to tell you that if you have not learned how to roll a joint and you have been around cannabis for at least a decade, you may not learn. And that is okay. It's not because you didn't take the class or you didn't practice enough. That's probably what it is. You need to do it like 50,000 times. But... <laughs> I had so many women saying, I want to learn how to roll a joint. And there were tons of joint rolling classes that you, that's how brands were engaging with consumers to start, right? Those yeah. were easy workshops to have. And so we had talked about, okay, let's do a video. 
okay, well, if we're going to do a video, I'm not going to put, we have our own papers. Okay, so that's good. The product in the video shot will at least be branded. But what we started doing um, Facebook Live, it was um, 12 days of Christmas, and the women that we were interviewing for each day talking about different products, even though they knew how to roll a joint, they all started with a cone. So then I'm like, okay, let's just show women how to stuff a cone. Yeah. How do you fill a cone? Well, all the cones really that were available at the time had raw on them. So that's when I was like, well, we have papers, but we don't have our own cones. It took almost a year for the manufacturing to come into play where we could have custom cones made. There was like, there was finally a vendor that had figured out the relationship with China and you could have them 2,500 at a time, not 25,000. Right. Right. So, um, and he had all of the, uh, Adobe files that you could just customize the cone. It was just made it a lot easier. Yeah. And so we launched the cone to great success, right? Women are happy not knowing how to roll a joint as long as they can smoke one. Yeah. Doesn't matter. It's like, okay, so you had in vitro. Yeah. Or you had a surrogate. You have a baby, right? Like you get there different ways. Yeah. It's okay. And I think, um, well, now Tokyo Smoke has, um, has coded their joints based on the effect of the strain that's inside, right? It really, that's an example of an idea that I had for Vanderpop that yeah. exploded all over Which the Tokyo you, yeah. Smoke brand. And I love that you guys did that because they, your storage containers would have like the, you know, use case sort of, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. And then also the, um, like the card grinder thing. Grinder cards, uh-huh, yeah. Uh, came with a little... Mine, at least, came with, like, a little postcard that explained each one, which is sure. super helpful. Um, so what Linnea is talking about, any <coughs> listeners at home, are our flower powers. So we had nine effects of the strain that you would keep in these um, stash jars. And they included everything from relax to sleep to sex to trip, focus, forget. Uh, forget being our pain, you know, pain relief strain. Uh -huh. um, and which eventually became a CBD. Like that's how we spoke about CBD. Very cool. Um, so while the flower powers, the monikers started as one way to categorize strains, it started to really, um, and this was the intention, categorize the content that we were putting out. Right. So that people could immediately see, oh, I don't have sleep issues. Like I'm good. I don't need to read that piece. Or, yeah. And we, all the content that we came out with, fit into one of the nine categories just to keep it consistent. Totally. That's awesome. How do you talk to your, cause you have two sons. Mm -hmm. How do you talk to your kids um, about cannabis? Very openly, whether or not this is how they want it to go down or not. Um, I just, I, I do not have two different lives. I'm the same person at work as I am in my personal life for better or worse. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that people had two faces. Frankly, I had not worked at a corporation. I didn't know that, but I appreciate that people have boundaries and they know what they, you know, feel comfortable sharing with coworkers, including experiences versus not. 
it's interesting being in the cannabis space because you can imagine how those lines can get blurred fairly easily. Yeah. So I feel really grateful coming into the space as um, a more mature person, right? Um, and happily in that role, I'm not staying out all night, um, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so with the kids, when I decided that I wanted to do this, and my husband was on board too, because, you know, I'm like, hey, how do you feel about all of a sudden having a wife that's in the cannabis space? He's in a very buttoned up industry. Uh, and we live six blocks from his parents, right? So Seattle is his community. I'm not from Seattle. I'm from Virginia. So it just was a, it was an ask that I felt was important. I talked to my in-laws about it. And so <clears throat> I decided that with the boys, let's see, this was um, 2015. So they would have been eight and five, right? They're little. Uh, we watched the Marley documentary, the Bob Marley documentary that's on Netflix. And I had seen it recently. So I knew that there was a point after they're talking about how awesome he is and his music is playing, which the kids, the boys know. There is a huge, huge blunt. It's not a blunt really, it's a joint, but it's so big. I don't know how they made paper to do this. He's smoking it and the boys feel like they equate smoking with the worst thing on earth that you can do. And so the look on my older son's face, his eyes got so wide and he was like, oh my goodness, he's smoking. And then he realized it was not a cigarette. He was, but what is he smoking, mom? And it opened up the conversation. It's called cannabis. It's a plant that people use for a variety of reasons. Some people consider it medicine. Bob Marley felt like it got him closer to Jaw, his God. And I had just met with the brand manager at Marley Natural. Like all this was happening at once. And he had met with Rita Marley, who said that when Bob, first name basis, <laughs> I just like to, cool dude. Um, when he would get, when he consumed cannabis, he would look, it was like he was overstanding. He didn't understand things. He had a bird's eye perspective. So he, uh, he, overstood all of the inputs and possibilities and and I really I explained that to the boys right it, it just changed your perspective and some people think that that is a bad thing this is how he saw it right wouldn't it be good to always be seeing all sides of things versus just straight on and so uh, that's what we talked about in that moment. And then the next day I said, so, hey, boys, there's a possibility that I'm, I have an opportunity to go into the cannabis space and not everybody thinks that it's a good thing. And you're too young to really make this decision for yourself. I am at, at a, I am in a certain way. The die has been cast. Your mom is in cannabis and I may not be in it for more than six months. We'll see how this goes, but I will have given it a shot. Yeah. And my older son just said, can you make a lot of money? And I was like, well, potentially. He was like, then why not? Which was weird, <laughs> but he's like Alex yeah. P. Keaton. And then <laughs> now he's in sixth grade and we've always listened to hip hop. That's just been our um, genre of choice around the house and in the car. And he's full on in it. And there's so many references to cannabis, right? So yeah. that is great because there's a ton of conversation around what this slang means and um, do I really think that the people that are talking about partying getting high all the time when they have 10 platinum records like there's so much work that goes into being that successful yeah some stuff is image 
Yeah. Right? And some stuff is, some people do get a lot of shit done smoking weed all day long. That's yeah. also possible. Right? Like, yeah. I don't know. It just, some people are faking it, you know, to be cool or to feed into this image. And right. then some people are doing what others think is nearly impossible, right? Yeah. Who are we to judge how others choose to use cannabis? I think you should be honest about your character, but um, yeah, there's been a lot of conversation thanks to music and yeah, music as the prompt. Yeah. Do you have rules for them around it? Like, have you talked to them about It's illegal until they're 21. Yeah. Right? They know if they even go near mustache or their friends try to talk them into it, they are dead, right? Yeah. They are very clear. Just like I, as a mother to two sons who's in the cannabis space, can't go around like the neighborhood just smoking a joint Mm -hmm. everywhere. Like, I feel like I have to uphold a higher level, a higher character. Yeah. Because I'm under scrutiny, right? You, as my children, you cannot mess this up either, right? Yeah. Especially because Seattle is so small. You know, you live here, your kids go to school here, people know what you do. Yeah. Um, And I didn't understand, I didn't really know a lot about Seattle before moving here. Um, And I'm from, I bounced back and forth between LA and Orange County, which are both like very large, and it is very easy to live two, three, four lives in either of those places. And then I moved here, and I have have a weird rule where when I move somewhere new, I purposely do not make friends for the first few months. I need space to adjust. Like, I want to assess everything, kind of, you know what I mean? I just need a little bit of space. Yeah, get the lay of the land. Totally. And um, I very quickly learned that this is, like, a very small city. It is. And, which has been great in some ways, because I made really great friends when I moved here, which is how you and I know each other, is through literally, like, one friend that I made who introduced Mm -hmm. me to her friends. And... That's most of my community here is like that web of friends that grew Mm -hmm. from the one friend. And it's been amazing because she has, you know, good taste in people. And so everybody's been super smart and friendly and wonderful, but it is very small. Um, I don't know how anybody dates here. I like don't understand it because everybody has dated like the other person in the room at some point, you know, it's like a little bit small. So I imagine as a parent, you know, other parents know what you do and who you are. You're held, you hold yourself to a certain standard. Kind of, yeah. I mean, I do, no I, I do because I don't want anyone for a second to discount the good work that the industry is trying to do because I have behavior that's unbecoming a mother. Right. In someone's eyes. Yeah. Right. It doesn't mean that I'm not honest about my cannabis consumption. But I don't feel the need to flaunt it. We don't smoke in front of the kids. We don't drink at the house unless we have friends over. That's just not yeah. how our household operates because we come from households where things have been abused to a point where it's unhealthy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think the biggest thing for me, the biggest learning for me was I told the boys that if they didn't consume cannabis until they were 25 years old, that I would pay for them and two friends to go to Jamaica when they were for their, their 26th <laughs> birthday. And then I, that was my thinking for months. And then I started thinking about it and I was like, so the alternative, because I'm, they're going to consume something. Every single male on both sides of our families has figured out a way 
to unwind thanks to a substance from a young age for better or worse. So the only option I'm giving them, I guess, is pills and alcohol, but primarily alcohol. Well, I don't know how I feel about that, right? Yeah. So the most recent study on teenage cannabis consumption versus alcohol says that, yes, there are immediate... um, there are immediate physical and emotional um, consequences to consuming both. However, by the time they are 25, any, um, any consequences due to alcohol, they've aged out of it. Their brain has repaired itself moving forward, right? I mean, I'm guessing this is unless you're doing some serious right. binge drinking like yeah. we did. <laughs> like everyone else in their late teens, early 20s. Sorry, after 21. Um, <laughs> but um, with cannabis, that's not the case. Yeah. The elasticity of your brain, the cells do not regenerate. This is all new in like the last few months. I, I, I still feel very fortunate that cannabis as something that I do on a more regular basis daily is something that came to me after 40 yeah. Versus earlier in life when it was definitely, rec- I mean, for obvious reasons, there was no access for yeah. me. I didn't have my own stash. If someone had it around, fine. Um, but I wish that I had replaced cannabis with drinking much earlier. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Much earlier. My So I'm the oldest of a lot of cousins. Mm-hmm. And what I told my cousins, because I knew they were going to try it. And they're all like, I... I've never really liked drinking. I never really got into it. Like, I didn't really drink more regularly until I was, like, 23. Yeah, until I was 23. And it was largely just because I lived in San Francisco and I didn't need to drive. Yeah. Right. Because that was socially. I mean, that's you meet people at a bar. But I still, I mean, yeah, I I still didn't. I just had ginger beer most of the time. And, like, and I used to go to clubs, like, three or five, three to five nights a week. I was, like, out at parties and clubs. And I would just... Because you're dancing and... I love dancing. Yeah. It's like, I didn't even understand other people weren't just going out to dance until I was... I heard you say that on one of the episodes. Yeah. I'm like, (laughs) oh, I didn't realize people were getting messed up around me. Yeah. Just (laughs) totally. And I'm like, maybe I'm somewhere on the autism spectrum. I don't know. But I like truly don't even feel... Like when people talk about peer pressure... Yeah. It's not even a feeling I understand. Right. Because the moment someone is trying to pressure me to do something, I have almost the opposite reaction where, like, out of pride, I'm totally like, oh, now that you're bothering me about this? Mm-hmm. Even to, like, a, a fault where, like, uh, my ex and I lived together, and he would be like, oh, do you mind emptying the dishwasher? And I would literally be in the middle of emptying the dishwasher, and now that being told to empty the dishwasher was like, oh, now I will not move right. forward on this task, yes. which is insane. Um, but I would tell my cousins, like, look, wait until you are a senior in high school, at least. I know. And because your brain has done a lot of forming, like, wait until your college applications are done. Then consider it. Yeah. Because I'm so grateful that I never did any of that through high school. Me too. Um, I was definitely a late bloomer in all respects. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Like, in every department for me. And I'm so glad because it really... I think, A, it was a matter, to me, it was a matter of, like, respecting my parents 
um, because they're very much about like just respect, you know, like right. out of respect, like we don't agree with this. Don't do that in our house. Mm-hmm. It's for the same reason. Like when I hear that my friends have like had sex at their parents' house, I'm like, to this day, I would never <laughs> like, I just, I'm like, I just couldn't do that to yeah. them ever, ever, ever. Even if they never knew, I just couldn't. Mortifying. And yeah. so, um, to me it was just like, why? And I, I also am not somebody who ever until recently felt like they needed to relax. And even when I did, I, I just started taking baths. Um, that's good choice. And they're it's very, very relaxing. Very <laughs> relaxing. And um, super accessible. You know, my dad had this thing he used to say to me because I have, uh, there's a family history on his side of family with like substance abuse mm-hmm. problems in like a really gnarly way. Mm-hmm. And he would say to us, and I appreciate it so much, as he would say, you should never be depending on something or feel like you need something. The moment you feel that way about something, whether it is coffee or sugar or alcohol or whatever, like you need to cut it out of your life. If for no other reason to prove to yourself that you are fine and you will still wake up tomorrow without that thing. Right. And that to me was like really impactful because he would say it all the time when we were kids even. Um, when we'd see somebody with like substance abuse problems on TV or whatever. Yeah. Um, because it really made me go like, oh, I shouldn't need to rely. It isn't, it's ridiculous that I shouldn't need to rely on coffee to get anything done. Like, no, I'm just not going to have it for a week and show myself like that is still a muscle that you have, that you are capable of flexing, that you can go on a run without being overly caffeinated. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's, yeah, it's, it's a hard conversation to open up, especially when you know that your kids are going to experience kids, A, doing it, and then also be kids who have, like, extreme perspectives on it because of their parents treating it like a criminal behavior, um, which probably doesn't happen that much in Seattle, I imagine. I'm <clears throat> So the conversation that we've been having in Canada now that it is legal and we're in this second phase, which cannabis legalization... Fortunately, that's been reached in Canada and we're moving towards that in the U.S. And now we're in this period what's called normalization, right? Like, how do you normalize this? How do we have the numbers of um, white people and people of color more equal in terms of arrests and convictions, right? How do that? Because it's not normal until that's the case. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. If it's sold in the same way you can go to the store and people do it, go to the store and (coughs) legally purchase it. Yeah. We should be able to get there. How do you normalize it? So I tell my children when they go to someone's house, if someone asks what their mom does for a living, it's up to them. They can decide whether or not they're honest with them or not. Right. I don't want to put them in a position where they're, this parent's looking at them like, I don't want you hanging out with my kid if you're going to use the word cannabis. So nonchalantly. Because also it's like you do branding is what you do now. Right. Yes, yes, they can say they can say I'm in design, whatever. And, yeah. um, and my older son has has chosen to not be completely honest until the last year. And I think um, he said something to like super close friends of ours, but they already knew, right? Yeah. Um, but parents do know what I do, and they will say, "Oh, James was so cute. He said, yeah. you know, you're a designer.' Yeah, it's up to them um, if they want to." accompany me on this in an active way. Yeah. Like they can just be bystanders as much as possible. And mom does her thing and she raises us and she's good at it. But you know, I don't want to get yeah. into all that. Um, but 
Yeah. So leading up, now we're in normalization. <laughs> so the conversation that we should be having is not about whether someone's doing something right or wrong, because based on the evidence that I've seen, anyone in their 20s and younger has zero issue with cannabis. Like cannabis is just part of the assortment of substances that they have at access to. And it is not, if anything, I mean, you look, there's going to be a 30, uh, 32% increase in low to no alcohol drinks. And then since, until, uh, between 2018 and 2022. That's awesome. Yeah. And cannabis use is going to continue to rise, right? So we're going to see a replacement. Cannabis will be used in cases where people were socially lubricating so they could get through some of their anxiety. Yeah. Right? It's going to take on a more active role, I think, in people's lives. And so the question is harm reduction, right? So they're going to be choosing this. Let's not start with just don't do it. Let's start with when you make that decision, these are some things that could go wrong. For instance, when I was in Calgary, we had a woman stand up in the audience who said that two weeks ago in that same community, a 16-year-old boy who had never consumed cannabis ever a day in his life died because somebody, I think they thought they were making a cocoa puff where you sprinkle cocaine in a joint with cannabis and it was fentanyl. Oh, and he died. God. Because he smoked a joint that had a white powdery substance in it. Right. So I need to talk to my kids about that. Right. Yeah. If you ever passed a joint at a party, no white powders. <laughs> like, right. It's just not working out for people right now because the people that are packaging it up don't give a shit if it's got a little bit of fentanyl, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Anyway. So we have those conversations because everyone I know that grew up in Seattle started consuming cannabis in eighth grade. Wow, really? My kid's in sixth grade. Oh, that's crazy. I don't necessarily think that's happening now. Yeah. With everybody. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a diff. Well, there have been kids that have school that have gone to rehab, the high school kids, and it's all been for pills. Wow. So, and if people are looking at cannabis like it's NBD, no big deal, you need to explain the ways in which it is. Because I can see where we talk about it casually, it's part of our daily conversation. They know I consume it, right? The more your kids know that you do, the more they're like, well, she's alive. <laughs> yeah. You know? And and I think with any sort of like with alcohol and with cannabis, both of those things, like, you know, it, people say it's dramatic when they call them a gateway drug. But truly, I think that the, the gateway there is really being comfortable with being in like an altered mindset and then liking it too much, That's you know, true. And it's not, it's not that, you know, drug I put in air quotes, like itself, it's just the idea of like, oh, what else is possible out there? Mm -hmm. And it's wild to me, I guess, because I, um, I was having a conversation with somebody who's like 21, super young, definitely like a partied out kid, you know, Mm -hmm. um, he's so, he's 21 years old and he's sober now, which to me, I was like, you must've gone through some stuff if you're sober at 21. Yeah. Um, yeah. He does consume cannabis, but I had said something to him about like mushrooms or DMT. He had never heard of DMT. And I was like, how have you done every drug but not heard of that? And it's because he'd done like everything that I would never even consider, like Molly and like all this stuff that I was like, whoa, that to me is crazy. Like I would never do any of those things. But much more accessible than DMT. Right, which I didn't even realize. Yeah, it, and it's just a different world where I was like, wow, these like younger kids, especially in the cities, 
are having access to all of these things that are like, like I didn't even, I mean, I don't even think I saw cannabis ever until I was almost 18. Like I'd never seen it. Yeah. I can't say that is the case for me, Yeah, but I hadn't consumed it at that point. Yeah. Um, well, and did you read how to change your mind? No, but I'll write it down. It's Michael Pollan. He wrote Omnivore's Dilemma, and okay. he is talking about silo, psilocybin. Uh huh. Um, oh yeah. And I think the one thing that that book really illuminated for me was that all of the substances that we do use recre- recreationally, including DMT, right? Yeah. Are really intended to be used with a person who understands the intention behind this substance and how to get the most out of it for the, for you as a purpose, like a purpose driven substance. Yeah. <laughs> that should be it is the not rebrand of living a purpose driven life. Yeah. It's just purpose driven substance use. Right. So exactly. I mean, that's exactly the conversation that we have around intention with the plant. Right. Yeah. There are people that choose to consume cannabis because they know it benefits their life in a variety of ways. There's an intention. It's not just like always for everyone. It's not always an escape period. Right. Totally. Um, so I'm hoping that by the time my kids start thinking about, uh, experimenting with mushrooms and the rest of it, that we have had an honest enough dialogue where if there is a therapist that specializes in guided journeys using mushrooms or DMT, the toad, whatever it is, (laughs) that they are open to that approach because they're going to save themselves a lot of bad experiences. Totally. Talking yourself off the ledge, which there's, there are learnings in that too. Yeah. But you can just speed up the work that I think these chemicals are really intended to do under the right guidance. So I think we're coming into an age where rather than using this stuff like willy nilly, like, Whatever the guy had, I said yes to lots of purpose behind yeah. consuming. And and really, to your point, understanding what it is that you're consuming um, is really fascinating. I, so as we're talking about this, it makes me wonder. Um, earlier, we talked about, you know, your shift from uh, your shift from CCO to then like being a thought leader right and like you were still the cco but you're now a thought leader for the brand and you had to give up the reins a little bit and shift sort of your uh values and priorities in that space and like what you were willing to control how do you think that has impacted your parenting well from the beginning i said that i felt like it would be a real privilege to be a part of the conversation in terms of normalization early on because those of us that are participating in that are going to be responsible for the messaging that my kids are going to hear. Yeah. Ultimately. Right. Totally. So there is some self-serving in there, right? Like who do I want my kids to be getting their information from (coughs) as their mother? Obviously I only trust myself. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, I guess like, has it, has it taught you because that just made me wonder like if then you have shifted your perspective on parenting and going like, okay, there's some things outside my control you know, um, and that there's like some stuff that, or, you know what I mean? Cause that is a muscle that's hard to flex. Yeah. Um, I think it's easier sometimes in business contexts than it is in, in relationships as like enmeshed yes. as being a parent. Yes. 
I think that that's right. I think how difficult it was for me to let go creatively or to let go of just control, right? Uh Those are lessons that are hard at any age, right? Yeah. And I saw how it backfired, right? Like when you're holding on to something so tightly that is no longer intended to be your purpose or your contribution, it doesn't work out for anybody because you're kicking and screaming. I mean, this, These are all metaphors, not really kicking and screaming, (laughs) maybe at times, but for something that you have no support, no one around you wants you to do this anymore. Yeah. So you're the only person that's trying to make it happen. Well, it's just going to be a lot harder and you're outvoted, right? Yeah. So with kids, I think you're outvoted as soon as they're, you know, 13 years old because their peers become their primary influence, if not sooner. So... I think it's learning to control the things that you can, right? Because that's what's going to give you peace. So my older son and my younger son, they pick good kids. Their friends are great, right? That's That's a huge deal. There's a lot of evidence about the peers and the company that you keep and the rest of it. So knowing that they pick great allies means that a lot of my work is done. I can, their friends are going to give them advice that I can trust. The way that they talk about their friends in terms of the things that they're concerned about or questioning, I also have a lot of um, faith that my children recognize when something just doesn't feel right to them. Yeah. Because I'm not going to be there in those moments where they have to make a decision if they're going to get in the car or they're going to do this or do that. They are going to have to know that they can, they have support at home. And I trust that they will make the right decision because I've seen how they arrive at their decisions. But um, that just means you're doing a lot of work on the front end. Totally. Um, and I don't know how to hold my tongue with them or to not tell them what I think they should be doing. But I think I, you learn a lot of credibility, whether it's at work or it's at home, if you think you always have the answers. Because that means you're not giving space for other people to contribute based on what a 12-year-old thinks is important, right? Yeah. I may think what we're doing is really awesome and cool and (laughs) all of his 12-year-old friends should know about it, but he doesn't want me yelling, I love you out of the door and I drop him (laughs) off at school. Yeah. Turns out. Yeah. Who knew? Right. (laughs) Um, How? So your business also... Like being an entrepreneur started when your oldest was a few years old. Is that correct? So I, I started my interior design firm when I was 28, when I got married and moved to Seattle and then launched the first product company, um, when I was 32. Okay. Yeah. He was about 18. James was 18 months old. How, I mean, well, I guess not really how, I guess like what, what have you, grown and changed. I'm just really interested in that balance and figuring out, you know, being a parent and then also being in a relationship. Those are difficult to balance enough as is with a normal job, like layered on top of it. That's already, you know, those being a a parent and being in a relationship with somebody are already to me, at least I feel like being in a relationship is practically a full-time job. Um, and then a normal job is already difficult enough, but when that company is yours, how did you, how do you do it? And not gracefully all the time, right? I mean, I, my husband and I have been together for 20 years. We just had our 15th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, 
It is a feat. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's twofold, right? You're on one side of my mouth. I'm trying to convince him just one more year. Just, just give me a little bit more time, right? In terms of your business. Yeah. In terms of <laughs> not your marriage. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm sure that's what he was like. I'll give her one more year. <laughs> but the business that, you know, you, cause you, you know your potential, you know what you're learning, you know how much you're putting into this so that you can succeed, right? I don't, I didn't know when that was going to happen, but there was no question that if I just kept investing in myself and taking it seriously and controlling, again, the things that I had control over, um, being serious about this, right? Getting up at, like a writer. They say, you're not a writer unless you write. You get up every morning, you sit at your computer or with a piece of paper and you write. If you are in business for yourself and no one's holding you accountable because you work by yourself, what are you doing to put structure in your life and to make sure that you're hitting your marks, right? So um, I learned along the way, right? Structure is really important for me. And when I don't have structure, work seems harder, business or home life seems harder. Everything seems a little bit harder. So, um, I would say that being an entrepreneur in my first decade of marriage, it's a miracle that we're still married. My husband is not an entrepreneur. He's chosen not to do that because that is not something that fits his personality yet. He's being forced to live that lifestyle. Right. Because of me, you know, it's in our house. I'm building businesses at our kitchen table um, have flexibility with the kids, right? There are a lot of benefits, but it means that if someone's sick, I'm up until four o'clock in the morning because the work's got to get done. And I burn out of that after Vanderpop. I just, I couldn't live that way anymore. So I was really grateful for the, for the backup, but <coughs> I think it is a testament to his, um, commitment to, my professional growth that when I looked at him and I was like, one more time, Vanderpop is it like he just, he was like, yeah, if you look at everything, it is the one that should work. Right. But he gave it one more shot with me when he was like, I'm done, cannot launch more business. It just, it's very disruptive. Yeah. It just, whether you want it, you think it allows you to have all this flexibility. I didn't have a paycheck, right. For let's just call it 15 years that was consistent or amounted to enough to pay my nanny full time so I could work like I was a CEO. Right. Right. And luckily enough, it did work out in the end. Right. It, I was able with one win to make up for a decade and a half of lots of begging and pleading for just a little bit more time. It's not pretty and it's not, um, something that doesn't require a ton of resources. You know, my husband has a steady job. He pays our mortgage. Um, he was able to cover me for childcare, uh, until got him back, but it was always a team effort because I mean, I wasn't bringing in money, right? right. I was building towards that, but there's a huge amount of time where you're asking someone to float you and yeah, we're a team and we're partners, but you want to be an equal contributor financially to your partnership or else you you feel like your power is a lot less. Whether or not that's the reality or not, it just, it's got to be true, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and it, it is something that um, 
I just, I can't even imagine because that's a lot. Uh, what are some things that, because obviously you are a good communicator. Like when you said that you, you know, talk to your husband and your kids about you going into cannabis. Um, and to, like, that is something that I know for me, I really had to learn because I'm so, I'll just make decisions on my own and in my head, they don't affect anybody but me and learning like, Oh, well, I did do that. And then how did you, what, what shifted that? And like what other tools, I guess. Well, because you... my husband learned to communicate that it wasn't working for him. Ah, uh-huh. And he's the person that <laughs> I'm sleeping with. Yeah. And I'm sharing my life with spending more time with than anyone else. And he's not happy. Like you got to fix that or else nothing's going to work or feel good. So having the same partner, the stability, not just from a financial standpoint, having been in the same house for 13 years, everything's super, super stable. He wasn't feeling stable because of my professional choices because I'm a, I don't care. I've got nothing to lose. Right. Like I've been doing this on my own, right. Put myself through college, this, that, and the other. So there, I didn't think about how it affected other people. Of course not. Well, cause you're also when you, cause I did the same thing. Like my parents didn't pay for school. I was very much on my own in that. And when you do that, it develops, like you have the confidence in yourself to know it's going to work out because you're like, but I've already done it. And to your point also, like in my head, I'm like, I mean, I heard somebody say something once that I was like, yeah, that speaks to me where it's like, I've already been poor. I survived. Yeah. So what? Worst case scenario, I'm just poor again. Right. It's not ideal, but people are not going to die. Right. You know, I'm not going to lose the ability to like still enjoy a sunset because, you know, I have to have roommates now yeah. or like because I had to move back in with my parents or I can't afford a car, like whatever. Um, but that is not... That's not what everybody signs up for. Mm-hmm. And it's also like that's still an individual who may have obviously has faith in your ability, has seen you do things, but it's also scary. Like people it's have bringing fears. stress into his life, right? And he's totally. done everything to mitigate stress <laughs> right. as much as possible, right? I mean, he doesn't want to live in that space. He yeah. has a stressful job. So everything else, he just kind of needs to not be stressful. Yeah. Like we all feel probably. Um, and I think his home life was stressful because of my work. Yeah. Um, so I had to figure out how to keep my partner happy and to like deliver on what I was telling him was going to happen. It's yeah. going to work out. Just, just trust me. Yeah. That's his favorite line. Yeah. I trust you. Right. So <laughs> you, you did mention that you have a nanny. Yes. Um, how has that helped you? Because, you know, to your point about learning how to use your time and stuff, I think there's a lot you learn about opportunity cost and time management um, and that we have a finite amount of energy in the day. What are some things that you've done to make sure that you're still able to do your job, but also keep the rest of your family, like their needs met? Uh, That's a great question. I think that I always saw having help, help, with the kids was actually so that I could spend more time with my children when I wasn't working. Right. So Karen, who has been with us for almost a decade is she does all our grocery shopping. She cooks for the week. Um, she will, you know, she's on Amazon, so she'll order stuff. And she's, I mean, she's like a family member. She's actually lived with us at times so she can read my mind. That is an amazing gift that of course saves a lot of time. 
so that yesterday when I had a kid sick at home, I watched a movie with him. Yeah. Right? Because she was here cooking for the week to make sure that everything else was good. Like, it just is such a gift. I cannot. I grew up as the oldest of four with a single mom. I was making dinner. I was giving baths. I was putting kids to bed. That's what I did. It was, it's not as if I haven't, I don't understand the other side and I don't really feel grateful. It is a huge gift to be able to enjoy my family. Yeah. And that's really the truth of what I think help allow, has allowed me to do. Um, Well, especially now that you are doing another company, right? Yes, it it, it continues. Yes, but yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I love that. And now that I bring that up, I realize we didn't actually talk about what you're doing now. If I remember correctly, you are doing uh, branding for, and like essentially, well, branding for cannabis companies. Is that accurate? Yes. I mean, that would be one component of it. So of like minds is a marketing channel channel for cannabis brands wanting to reach women um, and maybe think that they know that demographic or that consumer. Um, But I feel like it's our job. Um, I have a partner, Ellen, she's based in San Francisco to be able to show our work, right. To show the math, to explain to them how to heads of companies that are influential in the space what women will be if they aren't already, what that will mean to them as a source of revenue, um, what our, um, our wellness and health, overall health needs are, yeah. and what products can contribute to us having a healthier, happier life. Because, I mean, look at the, okay, so the one example I give is there are 26 FDA-approved drugs for men's sexual health, and there's one for women. And that is because people making decisions about what drugs should even, you know, get the green light for R&D are all men. Right. So it works out for them that, you know, their system is working. But what about us, right? Yeah. So that's that's the idea is that we have a podcast that's launching in October. How exciting. It is. And it allows... What's it called? It's called Just Say So. Okay. And it is about a lot of the topics that I've learned about, either through friends outside of cannabis, but then also seeing research and new information being presented about cannabis and marrying those two things. Um, One example is endometriosis. A lot of friends that have suffered from it, it's caused them infertility. um, And a horrible amount of pain. A horrible amount of pain. Yeah. Yeah. At different times, like whether it's premenstrual, during sex, all of it. And I had no idea, right? We're just starting to talk about this. So when I find out that there are 15 clinical studies that show that deficiencies in your endocannabinoid system contribute to the proliferation of endometriosis, how can I not share that information, right? And that each episode will be through a woman's story. So I'll narrate it. Um, and have my ear to the ground in terms of finding content that I think people will care about and will help them in their life. But it's really, again, just like with Vanderpop, it's women choosing to speak about their experiences in the hopes that others will learn and get, listen, people who find cannabis that were, had no interest in cannabis, they were not consumers, do so because they or someone they love had a medical 
issue yeah. that they tried everything. Cannabis was the last resort. It was the only thing that worked. So we need women to feel comfortable in that decision a lot sooner and it will spare themselves, everyone around them, a lot of pain. Right? Absolutely. So I love that. Um, what would you like to hear a future episode, a future episode of like for behind the scenes for the podcast? That's it. Ooh, that's interesting. Let's see. Um, I, I think it would be a good episode to support, um, explore the creative science a little bit more um, and the ideas behind that and who is creating platforms or vehicles that make the job of being a creative scientist easier or more productive, right? Because that's going to be something that hasn't existed before. Like we said, that title is maybe a decade old, really. Right. Um, it's proliferated quite a bit in the last decade, decade if it did exist. So how, what are the tools that we have that allow, that are efficient? You know, yes. there's this app and there's this website and there's this specialist and there's all of these things, but how can we be more efficient in getting to the answer and speaking in a language that the marketing team and the, and the business and the biz dev people start to really take creative ideas <coughs> And see them for being huge growth opportunities in terms of revenue and scaling and all of that. I think yeah. I would like to know what other people are doing. Totally. Yeah. I agree with you on that. Yeah, because there is so much of the value we add now is based around intellectual property. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I've even found it difficult. This is a conversation I have with someone else who's on the podcast, uh, Megan Murray, who's just a really brilliant strategist, um, around charging for ideas, right? Because when I'm paid hourly for something that I already knew, mm -hmm. it's, it puts me in a very odd position to go like, yeah, the actual work itself took maybe six hours. But that work was made possible over six years. Yeah. Mm. Over like yeah. years of experience. Like lots of me, like, you know, going to certain events or engaging with people and like going to these different places and being a human in the world. And you only want to pay me for a few hours of my time when this costs whatever. Like that either. And, and, it, and I feel insane than charging more hour, more money for my time when something else, you know, maybe I know nothing about. Right. Mm -hmm. I did a project recently that was surrounding healthcare. Mm -hmm. I don't really know that much around healthcare. Mm -hmm. It was probably six to eight hours worth of research and then a significant amount of time like synthesizing that information. Yeah. But that person shouldn't be charged the same amount. That person then gets charged less, in my opinion, mm -hmm. because I didn't come with a background of a whole bunch of information. I just came with the ability to do qualitative research. Right. That's a different thing. So it just makes it a little bit interesting and, and odd and like makes me reconsider just the business model of consulting and um, how that's communicated because I also don't like try charging my project um, because that can, you can get very like resource abused yeah. in that situation. Right. Um, I will look into that. Well, on that note, uh -huh. as an interior designer, you struggle with this all the time because it takes you years to develop your book of sources. Mm. So you can just go to that book for your next client and you've got the sofa and you've got the fabric, but finding the right, both of those does take a very long time, right? The yeah. partner that's going to deliver on time, all of it, right? 
So you charge an hourly rate and you charge a markup on pieces or markup on pieces. But at the end of the day, you will not be reimbursed in one fell swoop for all that time. It just is something over time that I think makes up for itself. Yeah. Um, and when Vanderpop, when I was transitioning out and starting up of like minds, a friend of mine shared something with me that shows the ebb and flow in your career of when you're giving and when you're asking. So I felt like with Vanderpop is asking for a lot of favors, asking help, please money, something from everybody. <laughs> yeah. And now when I get those requests, like I have an idea, can you walk me through this and tell me how to put together my deck? How can I, who should I approach for distribution in Canada? There's some ideas that are, are so easy for me and will help someone save so much time that I do believe that when I ask for something later, I will be treated with the same, you know, respect or so I give away a lot of stuff too because totally. people have well, done and that certain me. people too. Like there's yeah. certain people that I'm like, yeah, of course. Like I will gladly help you with this. And then there's other situations where I'm like, no, that's a paid service. Like these are two different <laughs> yeah. things. Um, but creatives get fucked all the time. It's true. Everyone yeah. thinks that they can watch like HGTV and build the addition on their house or <laughs> yeah, or whatever I'm trying to say. But I do think that people who are creative have for a long time been asked to give away their ideas for a super discounted rate. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for being on. This thank was so you. great. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of BTS Podcast. You can find the podcast at, at BTS the podcast across social media. You can find me at, at Lene Cook. And please do look up April Pride. She is on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. I really appreciate you listening. Music on this podcast is by Benjamin Batherum, and I hope you have a great day.